0: from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. It's not a long passage, just a few verses. I'll read it and then I'll give some context and we'll walk through it. Gospel of Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to crucify him. So this is a heavy passage. We are moving through Mark's gospel, we're in the final few chapters. And we're seeking to understand the nature of the love that makes the kind of transformation that Lynn spoke to possible. The account today occurs on what we think of now as Good Friday. It's uh, Friday morning, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has faced false accusations from the religious leaders. He's been handed over to the, kind of the Roman powers. And Pilate, acting as the governor, has kind of sentenced him to death. We talked about the exchange with Barabbas uh, last time we were in Mark. So let's pick it up in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. I think this is actually really important to try and visualize in your mind's eye. Sometimes when we think of the soldiers around Jesus, often it's depicted in paintings, maybe just a few around Jesus, like a collection. But Mark says that there was a whole company of soldiers in the Praetorium. The Praetorium is an open air kind of square courtyard that would comfortably hold standing somewhere around 750 to 900 people. It's a large space. And a company of soldiers is somewhere in the ballpark of about 600. So this is a pretty big spectacle. If you try and imagine in your mind's eye, and and the the equivalent for us might be sort of like at a hockey rink. If you were at a hockey rink, and all around the rink, the seats were filled, and then at one end of the rink, um, you had Jesus and a small collection of soldiers who were playing out what's happening here, but then on the floor, there are uh, regiments and legions of soldiers set up. The, the whole thing is designed to look like a mock coronation. It's supposed to be an intentional visual degradation that uh, of Jesus, towards Jesus, but it's meant to mirror what Rome did when Roman emperors were crowned. You'd have a company of soldiers that would come together that people would see, there'd be certain um, rituals that would play out. And at the end of the ceremony, you kind of end with this uh, celebration of hail Caesar as a acknowledgement that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is King, that Caesar is Savior. Caesar, Caesar brings the great peace, the Pax Romana, and he does it through the violent means of shedding the blood of his enemies. So in your mind's eye, this will be helpful, I think, to understand and to feel the emotional weight of this passage, to picture now this is a very public, very large spectacle. What's been unfolding in Mark is something that Jesus predicted would happen. Earlier in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, we're gonna go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is gonna be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and they're gonna hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Now, we actually don't get a reference in Mark to the flogging that Jesus speaks to. We won't get a reference in Mark 15 to the flogging that Jesus speaks to in Mark 10. But it likely happened somewhere in between um, Jesus being handed over to be crucified by Pilate in the exchange with Barabbas, and now the spectacle being set up. Uh, Commentaries and... Floggings were kind of done at different times during the lead up to a crucifixion, but most of the commentators on Mark say, by this point in the narrative, um, the flogging has already taken place. But that's important to, to pause on because um, that, that's, those are some details that you don't wanna rush through. Um, prisoners were customarily flogged. You, you would bi- you'd bind them to a pillar or a post and you'd give them whips or strokes with a flagellum. And I have a picture of one up here. And this is an artist, obviously, rendering, but they were um, makeshift uh, whips that had different animal bones, pieces of metal. Some that were uh, fairly uh, advanced had, uh, at the end, they had little balls that had uh, grooves cut out from, metal balls that had grooves cut out from under them to act as kind of hooks and spikes. So it was kind of a lash. And, you know, essentially what would happen is uh, the prisoner is bound to a, a, a post and their back is exposed and then a soldier is going to take the flagellum and they're going to not really whip the back because that's not really um, an accurate depiction of what happened because it's not a snap and a breaking of skin. It's more of a, when the flagellum hits the, uh, especially the end, the end points, right, the, the lead parts, the bone, they're meant to embed in the, in the skin. They're actually meant to dig in and then you pull down. And so it kind of creates over time uh, the flesh of the back pr- being mangled into kind of like bloody ribbons. And it was so um, graphic and so cruel that there, we have a record of a Roman historian named Suetonius who said that even the Roman emperor Domitian who was singled out in Roman history as a particularly cruel emperor? Even Domitian was said to have abhorred the practice. He didn't like it, it, st- it turned his stomach. So, this flogging has already happened. And we likely pick up the narrative in verse 17. In front of all these people, this big regiment, this spectacle of a coronation. They put a purple robe on him, Jesus, and then he twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So three things that Mark notes, the purple robe and the crown of thorns and this mocking uh, pronouncement, this mocking proclamation. So the purple robe, we know in, in much of history, but certainly in the Roman world, purple, was a color worn by emperors. When someone was becoming an emperor, you would put a purple robe on them. And so that was a sign of the emperor's royalty. And so in putting a purple robe on Jesus, there's a not so subtle mocking of his royalty. This royal anointed messiah that comes from this royal lineage of David is very intentionally making fun of that. The crown of thorns. um, This can can kinda go either way. A lot of us associate the crown of thorns as an instrument primarily of torture. So you have the thorns that embed into the skull, and there's definitely a dimension of that. But it's likely, in addition to the uh, purple robe, much more a symbol of humiliation than it is of actual, meant to actually inflict pain. And the thinking is, if we go to, um, let's go to the next slide, Greg. Sorry, next. Okay, so there's the purple robe. If you go to the next slide, um, one of the things you'll see is a laurel wreath around um, most depictions of Roman emperors, and those were called diadems, and it was kind of a crown, but um, they were meant to signify in pointing out or when the, uh, when the leaves or laurels were, were bound out, they were meant to, to kind of look like a, the rays of the sun, and the idea was that the emperor, in being crowned emperor, was connected to divinity. Early on, it was that the emperor of Rome was blessed by the gods, and this crown was meant to symbolize kind of divine enlightenment and div, and divine validation of the emperor's rule. But eventually, the emperors began to say, "Well, actually, I'm a god too," and so the crown became a, a, a visual symbol of the emperor claiming divine status. And so with, certainly within Jesus' lifetime, you have these coins appearing that talk about Caesar being Lord and Savior and Lord over all, and the Son of God or the Son of the Gods. <clears throat> so in putting a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, I think you can certainly make the argument that this is much more to belittle and to demean Jesus. It's a mockery of his divinity. The Roman Emperor is genuinely connected to the divine and to the gods. Obviously, he's he's on he's on the throne. He's on, he's in power. And we're, we're, but we're here today to celebrate this king, this divine son of God. So let's give him a crown. And in this kind of cruel mockery, right? Like the thorns stick out, and it's kind of this twisted commentary on um, just that is just making complete uh, mockery of any of the claims to authority that he or his followers have laid at Jesus' feet. So it's a mockery of his divinity. And then hail king of the Jews. And these words echo the salutation given to the emperor, Ave Caesar, hail Caesar. It's a way of saying, yes, we agree. It's it's a uh, Roman way of saying amen in a sense. Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord, Ave Caesar. But they say to Jesus, hail, not Caesar, hail king of the Jews. So there's kind of a double mockery here. One is that you're obviously not a king. It's a kind of a mockery of his kingdom because while Caesar is Caesar and Lord over all the earth, um, in a sense they're saying, Rome is saying, okay, Jesus, we'll give you this. You You can be the king. You can be this beaten, broken, loser, king of the Jews who were already in subjugation to Rome. So it was kind of a double insult both directly to Jesus obviously but also to the Jewish people that you can say whatever you want about your God as king and you've had these different insurrectionists that have kind of jumped up and said I'm the Messiah I'm going to establish God's kingdom. No. Any kingdom that you're a part of is under the umbrella of Rome and under the authority of Rome. And so in these three acts, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, hailing Jesus as king of the Jews, they're making mockery of Jesus's royalty, they're making mockery of his divinity, they're making mockery of his kingdom, ultimately his whole power. In verse 19, it says again and again, they struck him on the head, they spit on him. I mean, imagine, I don't know how many people here have been um, kind of bullied or physically assaulted that is, a, that is a, one of the worst feelings in the world, of that kind of profound powerlessness. Now, if that has been public or even been seen by a few other people, there's another layer of shame that's attached to that kind of humiliation. And so, on one level, try and imagine yourself being on the receiving end of this kind of overt, intentional, strategic, malicious, condemnatory mockery. We don't know how long this goes on for, I mean, they're definitely not gathering soldiers in the hundreds to just do something for two minutes and then we're done. So we don't know how long this plays out for. But even, even if this whole thing lasts for somewhere around a half an hour, right, that, that feels like an eternity. In Matthew 27, it says that the same cane or rod that they used to strike Jesus, they eventually put it in his hand in, as, a, as kind of a mockery of a scepter. Look at this great king. So they give him all the... the um, the accoutrements, all the, all the decoration of authority. But it's obviously meant to be uh, a complete derision, complete humiliation. So imagine that scene, 600 soldiers. Oh, and then here's another powerful one. When they do, hail king of the Jews, likely, and again, commentaries are split, but I'll go with it because it makes for a more powerful image. Likely, those soldiers kneel they probably kneel in fake homage, right? Oh, hail, king of the Jews. What a great king. We stand before your glory and as the blood is dripping from Jesus' body, as he can barely open his eyes, as as he can barely hold himself up, this whole company, this whole hockey rink of people chanting, hail, King, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. So the whole thing is meant to just spit on, literally and metaphorically, Jesus' claim to royalty and kingship and divinity. It's certainly meant to send a message to Jesus' followers, but then really any Jew who is hoping for the kingdom of God to be established. This is how we treat your kings. You can keep sending them. It's the same play out though. That's a message that Rome, it's a massive tactic of, of intimidation Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. So don't go over that too quickly. They would have taken off the robe he would have been completely naked. Uh, Very intentionally Rome, just literally exposing the complete nakedness and failure and frailty and powerlessness of this Jesus before the might of Rome. Then they put his own clothes on him and they lead him out to crucify him. And you know, you think about this drama playing out in your mind's eye and it, it could be easy to mistakenly read it as just a storm of human evil. But what's really amazing is that Mark wants us to see and the scriptures um, convey the fact that although it looks like just this outpouring of nonsensical human evil and violence, God's purposes are actually being fulfilled through it. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 50 It's given to the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus arrives on the scene. Isaiah 56, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 52, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. In Psalm 69, 7, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. That even while this barbarism is playing out, and by any human metric, Jesus and his movement is a failure. It's coming to a brutal and vicious end. It's actually the vehicle through which God is going to redeem and save the world. And see, the irony of the whole scene, especially when you get to the end, of this purple-robed, crowned, beaten, broken, bloodied, torn, humiliated king, standing before this legion of soldiers who are kneeling and saying, hail Caesar, sorry, hail King of the Jews, making fun of Jesus's divinity, seeking to undermine his, his, his royalty. You know, the great irony that Mark wants to show us, the Holy Spirit through Mark does, is that the soldiers, even as they are trying to do their worst, to undermine Jesus' credibility and authority, they're actually doing and saying things that are true. They are actually robing a king. They are crowning a divine authority. They are, at least with their words, hailing the world's true Lord. And I think about this passage in kind of consultation with the one that Justin read at the start of our worship service, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Paul is writing from prison to a group of Christians in Philippi about how they should interact with each other, how they should see and understand their relationship in Christ. And he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the resurrection and ascension, Paul says, God has vindicated Jesus. That while the world sought to dismiss and end Jesus, God has said, God has crowned this Jesus with royalty, revealed his divinity through the resurrection, and now through him has begun seeding and establishing a kingdom of which there will be no end. I also thought about the mirroring of Mark 15, 16 to 20. This, this, this picture I have in my head, these soldiers and you know mockingly coronating this King Jesus and Philippians 2, verses 5 to 9, and I thought about a line from the old hymn, All hail the power of Jesus' name. I'll read you the first verse. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of All right. If you read, if you sing the rest of that hymn, it is a powerful repudiation. It's a powerful rejection of this scene that you have here in Mark, of the forces of human evil and spiritual evil mocking Jesus, bringing forth a purple robe and a crown of thorns, a thorny diadem, mockery of this kingdom and of the promise that comes with it. Listen to the rest of these words. O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransomed from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. O that with all the sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. I thought about that image and that song a lot. I sang it a lot this week. Different renditions of it. And something unexpected happened when I did, as I reflected on this passage. And it's something I want to point out here because it was something that I think God brought to mind. There is a a great danger in mocking a true king. There's a great danger in mocking a true king. If someone just proclaims themselves to be a king or authority, you can dismiss them. And if they're actually, if they're they're not a king or queen, there's no consequence, right? If you mock someone with no authority, it's of no consequence to you. But if you mistakenly, or worse intentionally, mock Genuine authority A king, capital K, a ruler, capital R. then the consequences will be severe. And part of what I wanted to say this morning is, is definitely for all of us. But maybe especially for those of us who, like Lynn said, maybe they're kind of moving through life and kind of think they're Christian, or maybe they're not, but they're spiritually sensitive, they're a good person, they're a nice person. Be careful not to live. In mockery of Jesus' kingship. Please be careful not to live in mockery of Jesus' kingship. We live in a culture that in many ways doesn't just disbelieve or ignore Jesus and His royalty and His claim to divinity and His kingdom but actively mocks it. And if that temptation is in your heart, if that expression plays out in your life, I am going to ask That you rethink that posture on a pretty fundamental level. Because you might have a vague depiction of Jesus, this king, as gentle, meek, and mild, Jesus as kind of like the love everyone hippie who just wants us to be nice to each other and get along. And so, out of that picture, you might feel like it's not really that much of a risk to reject, mock, make light of his claim to authority. But in the final book of the Bible, there's a window that's given to us of Jesus' second return. Sorry, second coming. And how his royal return is going to play out. And it's both a window and a warning. And it is a vision given to John. And it's in Revelation 19. I'm just going to read it. No commentary on it. I'm just going to read it. Verses 11 to 21. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. And this is a vision given to John by Jesus of Jesus' second coming, not as the serving king, but as the conquering king come to fully establish God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men and horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now Revelation 19 is apocalyptic literature, meaning there's no Christian throughout history has uh, advised us to read apocalyptic literature in a direct, um, literal way. This is exactly how things are going to play out. But what apocalyptic literature is designed to do is to turn up the volume and the color intensity and um, in order to make clear a truth that... W- Uh, That might be lost in us if we just said, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and establish himself as king. And then read our own pictures of what that might look like into it. This is clearly a window into Jesus' return, but it's also a warning that he comes to abolish those who have stood against him. And that's a stark contrast, I understand that to this suffering king that we see in Mark chapter 15. In this hockey arena, beaten, humiliated, shamed, scorned, powerless, degraded, sin and evil being poured out upon him. The more I study this passage the more I'm convinced that the crown of thorns is probably meant to symbolize mockery rather than be used as an instrument of torture. And one of the reasons is because diadem in Greek means to fasten. That's where where the the word is derived from. It's derived from the Greek word diadeo, which means to fasten or I fasten. What we're seeing here in Mark 15, as, as Mark's gospel kind of hurdles towards its climax and its conclusion, you see what Jesus is doing. He's allowing himself, voluntarily, he's allowing himself to be fastened to the cross, to take upon himself God's wrath against the curse of sin. What's one of the curses of sin that shows up in Genesis 3 that God pronounces on Adam? Thorns and thistles will now uproot on the ground. Your life will be hard. Jesus takes the crown of thorns. Mark's The Holy Spirit symbolism through Mark is pretty clear. Jesus is fastening himself on to the cross. He's going to take the punishment and the curse of sin on himself for us. Jesus, who's really the king, becomes a poor, broken, scorned pauper, as it were, so that you and I could be welcomed into a royal family, into a royal priesthood, that we could become a royal nation and a holy nation. And so we see here in Mark 15 what true divine authority looks like. Looks like the suffering king who comes not to bring judgment to bear on his enemies, but first to bear judgment on their behalf. He's the king who's long suffering and kind and loving and so he comes to bear our curse and our sin so that we can walk in newness of life and then walk into eternal life forever. And that's why we sing. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, Lord of all. Let's pray. Jesus, we proclaim you as Lord. Would you please protect us from living in a way that mocks your royalty and your kingship and your kingdom? We want to live for your glory, God. Amen.